Hello there. I'm Marianne Reese with an update to my previous program, Senior Centric. It's expanding to become more inclusive by hosting guests and sharing conversations that all humans, not only seniors, can relate to. Our topics and discussions may evoke compassion, empathy, motivation, laughter, and yes, perhaps even anger. But each is a part of the human condition and each is of human interest. That's human interest. The first Thursday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. on San Marcos' own true community <coughs> radio station, KZSM. I sure hope you'll join us. Welcome and thank you for joining Human Interest today. I'm Marianne Reese, your host. And just a quick note about our, our program. All of our human interest programs are conversational in nature. Uh, with the intent to evoke some human traits, such as curiosity, empathy, uh, motivation, motivation such as self-actualization, even laughter, and perhaps even fear and anger. And what is so important, really, are just the two traits of curiosity and empathy. Those two traits alone have a significant potential profound potential <laughs> to impact the way we see ourselves, our relationships, our ability to grow, and, and understand our world. And to that end, I want to thank Becky Duval-Reese, Rob Rourke, our producer, and our guest, Dr. Rebecca Montgomery, for being uh, with me today. Uh, Rebecca is recently retired from Texas State University as a professor of history. And as I've read some of her bio and had conversations with her and, and read through a couple of her books, it's quite apparent that her interest and research uh, have focused over, over her career. And I don't know how many years you've been teaching at the university level, but about 25. That's, that's a career. Yeah. <laughs> so, so her focus and research over this 25-year career has primarily been uh, on the progressive era in the southern United States. And this era, the progressive era, follows after the Civil War and Reconstruction and primarily uh, falls within the dates of the 1890s to 1920s. Uh, and more specifically, Rebecca's work and her research and writings have focused on, on Southern women and Southern women's role in the educational reform movements uh, as, as education was and is seen as really the key to, to gender parity, to equality or equal rights uh, in an existing patriarchy. So with that as a background, my first question to you is uh, having been myself a professor, I've always been intrigued with how one finds their career path, their, their research area, the focus, because you spend 25 years yeah. <laughs> involved with it. And in your case, uh, not only the years teaching and your own research, but they evolved into two uh, highly regarded books and uh, the, the titles of which are The Politics of Education in the New South, Women and Reform in Georgia. And I think that was probably published in 2006. Am I right? Mm -hmm. About that yep. time. And then uh, The Celeste Parish, an Educational Reform in the Progressive Era South, published in 2018. And so those, those really, in my opinion, have kind of culminated your 
deep and thorough research of this area and, and really shows your significant interest in, in how you see the importance of the work these women did during this period then and now. And uh, I think the one of the quotes that um, I think Celeste Parrish is the key figure really to initiate this movement. Am I close to that? Definitely one of the leading ones. One of the, yes. And I, I, I think her one of her statements, I don't think it's a naturally a quote, but it said, Celeste Parrish, who knew that equality was central to women's social and economic progress, and who had no patience with men who attempted to combine women to subordinate roles. So given that kind of background, so go back to my question to you is, how did you, what was your path or your journey to find this as your career focus? Well, I knew that I wanted to um, focus on the progressive era South, and when I started looking, you know, looking at sources and trying to find a, an area to concentrate on, I had no idea it would end up being education. And in fact, education, the history of education is not considered to be a real trendy or sexy topic. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, most people think it's kind of boring. And, and if you're talking about institutional histories that aren't put into the larger social context, it can be pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> I've reviewed a few <laughs> books like that. But um, what I came to see was that um, education was really, in the post-Civil War South, the center of the struggle for a more democratic society. And um, democratic in the sense of both um, access to econo economic opportunity and um, a democratic access to political participation. So it was really part, a, a central part of the struggle to remake um, the, the social order after the Civil War. Um, so that was really um, sort of an epiphany for me. And then it pulled together a lot of other topics and uh, subjects that I had been thinking about and made sense of them as a whole. So for example, mm. it. Um, then it, it really made sense why education all along continued to be a central part of the civil rights struggle and why it was a central part of the civil rights struggle in the 1960s as well. Um, and um, it wasn't just about segregation and, 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 and integration, even though that's what we tend to focus on, but it's also about what people are taught in, this, in the public schools. So um, education really has a close relationship with democracy, and I'm obviously not the first person who, who um, realized that, but I just wanted to explore the many ways in which that was true. So whoever um, controls what people are taught, how they're taught, and what they're being taught to do in society, so whoever holds the keys to the classroom, really determines the social order. So it largely shapes um, who has access to privilege and power. And so in the post-Civil War South, the two groups I'm most um, concerned with were are women and African Americans because they're following this parallel um, path of struggle. So they're segregated, white women and African Americans, but they're really following the same um, path, which is um, challenging segregation, whether it's gender or race-based, and then um, trying to uh, you know, have full access to rights of citizenship. You started out saying that you knew you wanted to study the progressive era. Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, I, I was uh, 
a big fan of progressive reformers going back to middle school actually um you know and yeah i've always been a nerd <laughs> but nerd um but when i read about the progressive era reformers and the triangle shirtwaist factory fire and and how that that resulted in um, labor reforms i just thought it was so cool that these middle class people who had no real connection to working class um women or, or the working class more generally would care what happened to them, would act on their behalf, would like use their privilege um, to speak for the people who had no privilege. And I just thought that that was, um, I mean, maybe it had something to do with the fact that my father was a minister and, you know, I've been raised with Christian ethics and I just thought that that was a, just a very admirable kind of moral position to have. Rebecca, you might remind people about that fire that, that, that prompted. The uh, yeah, in, in that fire, um, f female factory workers had been, um, were trapped on the top floor of a factory. Um, I think it was like the eighth and ninth floors. Mm. And they blockaded all the doors. Um, the doors were locked shut to prevent them from taking breaks. And so they had no way out. And so they had to jump out the window and so people walking by are watching these young girls, um, teenagers to early 20s, fall to their death on the sidewalk below. And um, Frances Perkins, who became the Secretary of Labor, the first woman to hold a cabinet position under FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, she was one of the people who was walking by and saw that happen. Oh, my goodness. And so she became, she was a settlement house worker, and she became uh, an advocate for labor reform, and that was in New York City. And what year was that? I believe it was 1893, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah. yeah. They were sewers, right? They were yeah, 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 they were working in a sewing um, yeah. factory, well, yeah. basically a sweatshop where they were all crammed close together, and there were lots of flammable material on the floor, so it was, yeah, it was a horrific event. Ah. All right, so that got you focused on that? On that era, yeah. And you learned that in school middle school yeah yeah i mean i think it may have been sixth grade um somewhere right around there yeah. oh uh, okay so, so yes they used to teach those things in middle school i do remember you know no in in sixth or seventh grade yes you know you would start to go back and, and it was more of the modern but i remember learning about the progressives i remember doing yeah. current events and things like that that it might not but in, it would be in the the books by then. But that's another subject talking <laughs> about what just what you said, what you are able to read, and what you're able to read, and who controls what yep. goes into the what is the content. Yeah, I mean, um, education has always been highly political, and you know, even as it is now, what oh. people get to study, what they get yeah. to learn about, shapes their worldviews. Well, tell us a little bit more about the movements because uh, obviously this. This era was prior to the 19th Amendment being passed in 1920, so their work had been done, again, post-Reconstruction. So between 1877 and, is that when this? Yeah, Reconstruction 18, ends well, right around, 18, yeah, right around that, 1877 yeah. is when it officially ends. But. All right, so, so there were other movements. I mean, yeah. so were more than one? I mean, how did this kind of coalesce, or did it come from the suffrage? Suffragettes. Suffragettes. Um, yeah, suffragettes. Or are you talking about just the, uh, the progressive reform as a whole? or 
I, I'm really thinking about your period in terms of what was going on in Georgia and yeah. But with the women's rights, I think is what you're you're kind of talking about yeah. that with the Nineteenth Amendment. But how by the time you got to 1920 with the Nineteenth Amendment, you know what? Tra how did all of this progress? As you were saying, post uh, Civil War. Yeah. The, with that movement period. to get to that. Yeah. Well, the um, the first wave of feminism, the the women's rights movement, emerged in um, out of the abolitionist movement. So it was due to discrimination against women within the abolitionist movement. So um, a lot of abolitionists in the American Anti-Slavery Society um, did not want to take on the, the, uh, the issue of women's rights because they thought that that was even more controversial than ending slavery. And it actually was more controversial. It was more controversial to consider giving white women rights than it was to consider giving freed slaves rights. Because of course, if you can imagine, these white men in Congress, they don't live with slaves. They live with white women. So it would have completely thrown the order of their households um, into chaos. Yeah. You know, so they didn't, they liked the gender order the way it was. So it was, con and, and they, of course, tried to argue that this was based in uh, Christianity and this is God's, you know, or, you know, sacredly ordained that women should be in their, the, the sphere of the home and men in the sphere of the economy and politics. So. Um, it, so it, it emerged out of, so, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, Lucretia Mott were two of the abolitionists who decided when this, when we finally um, end slavery, when this, you know, when this kind of crisis passes, we need to launch a separate um, movement for women's rights. And it actually, they actually launched it before um, the Civil War. So in 1840, the Seneca Falls Convention is when they launched the, the women's rights movement. So um, the Civil War, by um, you know, heightening the, the rhetoric of democracy and equality, gave a lot of encouragement to women and to working class men that maybe democracy would be widened for them too. And so um, after the Civil War, then there's a big push um, to have, for women to have equal access to higher education. So that was, since they didn't get the vote, <laughs> They didn't get equal civil rights. Um, they were left out of the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, then they turned to education as like maybe the, the, the next way to, to create an entering wedge for equality. Yeah. And, and so they have this really close tie with education, not just because they're mothers, um, most of them, but also because they see it as the key to gender equality. How, how do Again, during this time period, obviously there's communication is difficult. So how do these groups coalesce? How do they how do they work together and well, build such such a movement that changes Georgia for sure? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it starts in women's clubs, and, and so most people when they think of women's clubs, they think of social clubs, and that's how they start. But um, women began using their social clubs to educate themselves because um, most of them knew that they didn't have an adequate education. So they um, adopted really a syllabi. They would create syllabi for reading and guest lectures, and they would give reports to one another on topics. And they actually became better informed on social issues than most politicians or most male um, civic leaders were because they made this conscious effort to educate themselves. Um, 
And once women's clubs began this activity, and of course it, it, it's late filtering down to the south, but it starts in um, Midwest and, uh, and northern um, cities. But then they create federations. So um, the General Federation of Women's Clubs tied all these women's clubs together in a, a national um, organization, and they had um, annual meetings. And then um, they created state federations when they had enough clubs to do that. And they actually divided the state into um, political, they used political districts. And so they'd have a, a federation yeah. for each district and the districts would meet independently. Um, and then they would send delegates to the state federation of, of women's clubs. And then the state federation would send delegates to the general national meeting. So it was this really sophisticated, extensive, um, network in which they um, all adopted the same agenda more or less so they would all have legislative committees and they would they had a list of legislation they wanted to work on um, they would have um, committees that for education for public schools you know or wow. and they'd have some for public health you know and they tackle public health issues in their communities how are these clubs these organizations perceived by the regular the community as a whole, right, and including men, men in power and professional and... Well, I think in their local communities, they were usually received pretty well because they, um, they were doing important work and it was all free, right? Since they're women, and this is, this is basically their career is volunteerism, um, it's free. It's unpaid labor, unpaid labor, um, yeah. and it's important work in the community. And usually, when they got projects started, so let's say they wanted a public health clinic, they would pay for it. They would raise donations, and once everything was up and running and it proved its worth, the city would take it over. Huh. So wow. they yeah. So then, so that's how they get. Um, I mean, really, in many cities, there's a whole book on how they do this in Dallas. Um, they um, are responsible for modern municipal infrastructure. Wow. Yeah. Rebecca, let's stop on that, take a, a station break. Thank you, folks. Come back with us in a few minutes. And you are listening to Human Interest here on KCSN wow. LPFM 104.1. And uh, we're going to be right back with you after this announcement. And just as a reminder, the views expressed on the show are those of the host, the guests, and not necessarily those of KCSN LPFM or uh, SMTX CRA, our governing board. Be right back with you. Hey, have you heard? KZSM now has a program in all in Spanish. The music in Spanish, all the commercials in Spanish, and the guy even recites poetry in Spanish. Yeah, that's me. I'm El Tío, and the program is called Musica con Ganas. Join me every Sunday evening at 8 p.m. on San Marcos' own true community radio, KZSM.org, now broadcasting on 104.1 FM. Ladies and gentlemen, y toda mi gente, my name is Josh, also known as DJ Alpha in the mix, and I am the host of the Latin Energy Show on KZSM San Marcos. I'm inviting everyone to tune in every Thursday evening and join the Latin Energy Party. 
Here on KZSM.org, we are all about community support. So tune in online or download the KZSM app on your mobile device. Shout outs and requests, make sure to follow and tag us on Facebook at Latin Energy Show KZSM. Tu sabes. Hello, I'm Mateo Garcia. I'm a scientist and I'm the host of Science Stories. Every Friday at 3 p.m. on KZSM Radio, I interview scientists about their work, but I focus specifically on the anecdotes and story that happens while they're doing research. So, And we are back with you here in the studio. Marianne. Thanks for joining us, staying with us. Rebecca, we left at the, the break just then, and you were talking about that these clubs form the infrastructure for municipalities. They're... Uh, I guess medical infrastructure when you're talking about infrastructure what else I mean um, kindergartens okay also um, they, those were all volu- um, you know volunteer staffed um, they were started by women's organizations oftentimes they would raise the money to pay for the teachers but in, in, in the south in particular kindergartens were not funded by the city or the state they were in, until women got them established Okay. They needed enabling legislation. Most of the state constitutions at that time specified that education would only be for people between the ages of five and I believe it was 16 or 18, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at break, Becky was also adding it from her area of expertise. Becky? Yeah, um, just doing research on history of Texas art, women's clubs were the primary promoters of art education in the schools and hosting local art exhibitions and even importing important art to the communities. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, knowing how so many really prominent women uh, form these clubs, and they're still active, like in El Paso, where I was, that Sometimes the women's club would invite me to give a talk, and there was still this group of very powerful women <laughs> in the community doing the, the work for the community. But, you know, I think the idea of calling it a women's clubs, you know, kind of was a... Um, it kind of denigrated the power of the group and maybe in a way protected the power of the group. (laughs) So it's just like, oh, they're just going to the club. And so, but then doing what you're telling us, this amazing work, I I had no idea how how spread across the country it was and how um, deep. Yeah, I mean, since they were married to um, prominent men in town, they uh, they had status, they had prestige, they had respectability, and um, people listened to them. And, you know, they had the support of their men most of the time. Sometimes there yeah. were some clashes. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, I don't want our listeners to think that, that no men were supportive yeah. or knew about it. Like, this was, you know, yeah. you know that's, that's certainly not our our desire to leave that as a a thought. But when it morphed into something more, tell us how that might have changed or really fighting against institutionalized. When when they tackled things that, um, like child labor, which would have undercut the ability of factory owners to, to minimize labor costs, that they did not meet with a very good reception. Um, when they 
supported women's suffrage. They did not meet with a good reception. Um, and in fact, oftentimes they would get, they passed around um, list of people, uh, of politicians who would be sympathetic and those that were not. And so, you know, sometimes there would be choice comments made in the newspaper that were quotes from politicians who would be denigrating the women and um, did not think that they belonged testifying before a committee in the state legislature, thought that they were silly and didn't know what they were talking about. And they, you know, they were very much patronized yeah. in, in many instances. Well, we're focusing on your, your research on the, the South. But, and um, I know in this, this, the idea of the Equal Rights Amendment, which is now somewhere in no man's land or something. Yeah. But I was thinking with your research, and we talk about the South, I, I looked up what, so what constitutes the Southern states in the United States, and, and there are 16 of them. So is that where you focused just really on not so much the South, but mainly Georgia, or is that just where Celeste Parrish did her work? Um. I have to admit, and I chose Georgia in a somewhat arbitrary manner, <laughs> um, but you know they had an active women's club movement. They had a, they have a lot of records, and you know sometimes historians have to kind of pick their their topics according to what kind of documentation they can find. Um, but I did focus on the Deep South in particular, just because um, I spent most of my life in either East Texas or South Carolina. And, um, you know, so, you know, growing up in the 60s during the Civil Rights Movement and, it, it, you know, directly experienced the chaos and often violence of integration of schools through public busing. Um, I was really interested in sort of how the South got to be that way. Um, and so I really wanted to focus on the Deep South for that reason. So how do you think the South got to be that way? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the deep south. Yeah, well, um, you know, South Carolina is the state, the first state to secede, was very proud of that fact still when I moved there in 1969. I um, was still very proud of that. Um, and, you know, people had bumper stickers that, with the Dixie flag that said unreconstructed. Mm -hmm. I know still, I know, can you believe that in 1969? Yeah. It, it that. was that way when I was there. I graduated high school and uh, went to uh, college there in, Char in Charleston. So I, I spent uh, most of my 80s there in South Carolina. And it, then it was still at that way. I mean, it was just in 1982, they finally took down uh, the state flag in South yep. Carolina was the uh, uh, battle jack, uh, you know, the uh, the crossbars. Yeah. And uh, they had flown that above that. And that was a really a big issue that that was the last state house to take that down. Yeah, yeah and Georgia only took the um, Confederate flag off its flag in the 1990s when I was living there when I was doing my research. Mm -hmm. um, but I... I think um, how the South comes to defend its position prior to the Civil War is by saying that the, the racial and gender order of the South or the natural order and that actually the United States, com and there's people now saying this today as part of the sort of back, you know, the, the assault on democracy that we're experiencing now. Um, the argument, in fact, this, our current Speaker of the House just has said this recently in the last few years, that democracy is like unrealistic 
it's not sustainable that um, because there is natural innate inequality and so southerners um, have to make this argument to justify slavery so to, to their mind this is um, only um, natural and an admission of reality you know just an accommodation of reality and they have to make that argument because the whole rest of the country is becoming more democratic as they become less democratic. And so they hang on to this idea that, the, that there's a natural gender and race order in order to um, sort of, I think after the Civil War, as a matter of pride and because to admit otherwise would be to admit that that carnage of war in which one out of four Southern white men died hmm. w was all for, a, was illegitimate, you know, <laughs> so they have, you know, it's a salve to their wounded pride, basically, to, to continue to make this argument, and that's why they um, are the most conservative on race and gender. In the 60s, uh, <clears throat> I had friends from Mississippi, and their take on the Civil War was, oh, it wasn't about slavery, it was states' rights. And, you know, I heard that echoed over and over, and it's still probably being used. It's the right of the state to determine the fate. So, yeah. But if you read all the secession um, conventions in the southern states, it's all about slavery. Of course. So it's about states' rights to have slavery. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the answer yeah. to states' rights. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to take another quick break. Please stay with us. And you're listening to Human. And you're listening to Human Interest here on KCSM.org, True Community Radio, KCSM, LPFM 104.1, San Marcos, Texas. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, whether you are uh, through the airwaves here in San Marcos or whether you are listening in all across the world, thank you for tuning in. Hi, this is Steve Chelmsford reminding everyone to catch my show, The Mop Tops and the King, featuring an hour of the greatest two artists in the history of rock and roll, Elvis and the Beatles. Every Monday evening at 9 p.m. right here on KZSM, San Marcos Community Radio. This is Free Thought Radio with co-hosts Dan Barker and Annie Laurie Gaylor. Irreverent views, news, music, and interview. Tune in Mondays, 11 a.m. to hear Free Thought Radio right here on kzsm.org, your true community radio station. Free Thought Radio is underwritten locally by the Hill Country Freethinkers. Uh, we're back. Um, one of the things I just wanted to add, we're, I mentioned before the break about there being at least listed now 16 states that constitute the southern United States. And of those 16 states, uh, only three of them did not join the Confederacy. And, and that was Maryland, Delaware, and Oklahoma. And I also went and checked, so how many of those states uh, have certified or ratified the Equal Rights Amendment? And of that, there are 10 states that are common that were Southern states and Confederate states. And they did not ratify the equal. So it's, I think it, it goes deep, yeah. it goes long, and it, it, I, I, I think we'd be fooling ourselves and any, anyone else to, to say it's not tied to uh, economics cotton 
slavery. Yeah. Cheap labor, just, just like you were saying yeah. about, you know, the age of how old can a child be to work and work labor laws and all that. So, well, Rob has reminded us before, just now before break, that so several of our shows and continually will be, maybe not next December or this coming December, our uh, guest won't be ne necessarily speaking of patriarchy, but that's a subject we've been really delving into, starting with Barbie and how that, that bombshell movie <laughs> brought this to many people's minds and, and how differently people saw it. But this research that you've done on education and what found is that mainly education was a tool to keep people in their place, as seen by the dominant leadership and, and that's been and it has always been and probably okay I I'll take it back as I've done before back to the Pleistocene era about 12,000 years ago when we became not nomadic but agrarian and once you I guess the nomadic lifestyle was much more uh, I, I guess equal. Everyone had to pull, pull the weight, you know, in the nomadic life. But when you have start raising crops and cattle and all that, then you need more help doing these these roles. But um, patriarchy goes back probably to that time. But when you think about evolution, which I talked about several times, even when we were doing this senior centric show, is that. Uh, when you speak and you look at that in almost all social animal groups have evolved and have patriarchal systems are earlier called a hundred years ago called the pecking order research done by a Norwegian scientists looking at chickens but but we now call it dominance hierarchy but it is a patriarchal system we're a dominant male runs the herd, the group, the, the society. So I, do you see that element in your research? I mean, does that word, is that a part of your research where you talk about patriarchy and, and let's go on, uh, feminism, and um, is that a part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, arguably the South had the most attachment uh, to or investment in patriarchy of any region in the country. Um, people who moved west um, because on the frontier, like you were saying, everybody has to kind of pull together. Um, one, one argument, which has been debated, um, but it is that one reason the western states were faster to give women um, the right to vote is because they recognized their um, equal contributions. I mean, the argument was that you can't, nobody can, t can make it on the frontier by themselves, right? And nobody's going to work as hard as a wife, <laughs> right? You can't pay anybody to work that hard. Um, so um, one argument has been that, that you know, their value um, in settling the West gave them greater equality and, and better rights. And in fact, the Western states were, were much more supportive of, of women's suffrage. Um, but in the South, because of this, um, cultural um, legacy of, of a real strong patriarchy, which was necessitated by the desire to keep um, slaves under control and to keep them from revolting. 
um, there, actually women's inferior status was codified in law much more so than you would have found elsewhere. So women's legal status in the South was really not much different from that of a slave. Um, and even though you know, women, the women's movement in the rest of the country was also fighting for um, equal rights, such as women's rights um, to be guardians of their children, because that did not come automatically. They had to fight for that in, uh, in legislatures. Um, in other words, if their husband died, um, they would not automatically have guardianship of right. their children, right? Um, women's rights to their wages, because technically when they married, the men, uh, their husbands owned everything they had, including their wages, including their bodies. Um, and, and so the rest of the country, is it, women are fighting for these rights too, but in the South, it's just, um, it's almost like time stands still. I mean, um, if anything, there's even more intense efforts to maintain this strict social hierarchy after emancipation because, of course, they don't own slaves anymore, so they have to reassert control in some other way. Um, so I, I see the, the, the sort of hyper patriarchy or uber patriarchy of the <laughs> South as being just um, almost, almost smothering for women. Mm. And um, it's one reason why, you know, many state universities in the South were limited to men, even though women who owned property were paying taxes to support public institutions. They, they could not go to them. They, you know, they were close to them, like the University of Georgia, the University of Virginia, um, Texas was different. I think the kind of being on the western edge of, of the South made a difference. But um, you know, it, patriarchy was um, definitely structured women's lives much more rigidly. Um, and women and the rest of the country had gained a lot of um, public influence due to the social gospel and the fact that they were majority of churchgoers. So church, you know, religion had become more. Um, egalitarian um, outside the South, um, but Southern churches remained very strictly patriarchal. Mm. So women just really didn't have many outlets for, um, to, to gain public influence. So that's one reason they were slower to, to organize into women's clubs and um, to, to establish federations and you know, to become organized, in other words. Right. I'm, I'm kind of curious, though, because, uh, you know, Wyoming was the first state uh, to uh, ratify for the 19th Amendment. And here you have, yes, it was smaller, you know, this was settled. But it's something about, did the frontier, was that different with the way that they looked at the women in the society that, you know, they, or was it just they were better organized in a smaller state to be able to get that to pass because of the, the women's groups? I, I'm just kind of curious. Well, I think part of it, I mean, there, this is something that's still debated in women's history. I mean, I think part of it is that um, they're just simply fewer people. <laughs> um, and maybe it's, you know, that plays a role. Um, also, the fact that women, they need women in these West, Western states, right? I mean, there's usually more men than women to begin with. Um, men usually go ahead, women come later. Um, and women do an equal amount of work on, you know, when it comes to agriculture. Yep. But Wyoming, I'm, I'm not sure about specifically. Okay. And I, I have not checked the states. One of the things, and I, I, I'm going to just dip my finger in this thought. I mean, 
I did read where a lot of these states, and you look at them, you know they're mainly mm-hmm. Republican states. Yeah. And how that plays uh, a role in it. I mean, it's it, how can you not tie yeah. <laughs> the, these these issues of their Southern, their Confederate, their didn't yeah. go log on. So, uh, but you think that religion is lightening up, not not really a, a major factor in some of these states, or you said less and more so in the Southern states. Well, um, a little more women, controlling. women have a harder time gaining, uh, creating their own space within Southern churches. So um, ministers are only ha- too happy to accept their free labor when it comes to charity in the community uh-huh. and oh. fundraising for new pews or new, you know, or even to pay the minister's salary. They're really happy to do that, but if, as long as women don't step outside that prescribed role, so if they want the right to control the money that they raise, if they want the right to independently um, have their own body and um, basically be segre- segregated from men but have equal say in church policy, then that's not accepted. You know, that's not acceptable to, to men. So um, Southern churches just remain more rigidly patriarchal longer than churches in other parts of the country. Yeah. I, I'm, I know that there are a couple of citations in the Bible that are always brought up saying that, and I think it was Paul that said, yeah. you can't have hierarchy or you can't teach or be over men or something like that. Well, I mean, you know I, that, that's a very rough paraphrase. Yeah, I think at some point, or something, yeah, Paul tells yeah. Uh, these Christians that, that women should not speak and and. The services, or they should not speak in, in church. And now I don't know this for a fact, but my mom claimed, <laughs> like I said, she's a you know the wife of a minister, but she claimed that there was disorder in that church because there was like marital conflicts and that they were like fighting in church, husbands and wives. And it came from that. It was never meant to be some kind of blanket statement that women should not participate in church. Um, you know, mm-hmm. should not have any role public or verbal participation in, in, in church services. Yeah. But, yeah, they always like to trot that one out. That, yeah. To, to justify not having um, women ministers or whatever. Well, and, and I also want to mention when we start talking about the control of dominant men, that uh, patriarchy, that it's not just in the United States. It's not just in the South, you know. I think everyone sees it across the world. Yeah. You, you yeah. can't watch any news program without seeing Hamas or the Taliban or, yeah. you know, uh, and I always, I, I mispronounce, is it Qatar? Qatar. 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 Qatar is actually. Qatar, Qatar yeah. is now how, it used to be Qatar and then it now is Qatar. Okay? That's, that's, but yeah. the folks that uh, are, have been on the overseas, <laughs> their military, it's Qatar. Qatar. So that's yeah. it, Qatar. But I, I read where there they have a, a constitution that says men and women are equal, but there are no laws that really support that. And that for a, a man, a male can marry four, have four wives, not not the permission of the first wife. Or I don't know if it was four plus one. Or <laughs> I didn't delve deeply enough. Four was enough to kind of get my hair up. And the. One of the the first wife has no say in this relationship. Of course, women can't have four husbands, but 
uh, and that a male can report his wife for disobedience to the government. You know, and of course, if you go into all these countries, it, it's just amazing what, I mean, we're, we're kind of looking meek and mild in a way in the United States, but harsh enough to, to prevent women from really their full ability to participate in, in their own well-being, in their own life. And well, I will say that if, if the resistance to gender equality was only in the South, I don't think we would have had the Dobbs decision. I don't think, you know, I don't think a lot of things would have happened uh, recently. I mean, every time there's women make, or, or any group makes progress towards um, a greater democracy, more equality, um, there's always, it's inevitably followed by a backlash. Yeah. So it, it always is um, followed by a backlash. So, but I will say too that um, the um, funda fundamentalist Christians really are some of the most um, vociferous opponents of gender equality. And um, mm -hmm. the Southern Baptists are the largest group, um, religious group in the country, and it's, that's the dominant group in the South. And they still, um, they just, I think, earlier this year ejected uh, a church because they had a, a female minister. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, so it's like, the, you know, so the South is just kind of an exaggerated version <laughs> of what exists, um, you know, here and there elsewhere in the country. Um, and, and fundamentalist Christianity is very uh, dominant in the Midwest, too. Um, and you see also the same kind of opposition to um, reproductive rights and other aspects of um, a, you know, female autonomy and equality. So <clears throat> we really are in a backlash. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I was in, very involved in the second wave, the feminist movement in the 70s. And so much of what we worked for was achieved. And now we're having to fight those same battles again and try and keep them from being totally overturned. and more equality to, you know, to press forward. But uh, yeah, the, the backlash movement, I mean, also in the critical race theory controversy, the banned books, the all the backlash in education, you know, is all around us. And it just seems like there's so many battles, you know, ahead of us and yeah. that we have to keep pushing and, Having programs like this that, that get the history before people and keep the history in our, yeah. in the forefront of our thinking and um, just all of us keep working together to keep going. I mean, the whole purpose of studying history is to learn from it and to learn what can be done better. Um, how can we do better? And if you ban whole you know swaths of history from public <laughs> education, um, you just raise raise ignorant citizens, and how are they going to cope with the with the issues that have historic roots if they don't even know what they are? Well, on that note, let's take a quick station ID break, and we're going to okay. come right back. But uh, I, I do want to ask a question on the progressive history when we get back. KCSM.org, you are listening to uh, uh, Human Interest here on the uh, first Tuesday of every month. You can tune in and uh, hear Mary Ann talk about some of these great subjects. So uh, please, Marcus on the dial, Marcus uh, on your calendar, and... Uh, 
join us here on kcsm.org. And just as a reminder that the views expressed on the show are those of the hosts, the guests, and not necessarily those of kcsm.org, KCSM, LPFM, or uh, SMTX, CRA, our governing board. Be right back with you. Get ready for a mind-blowing musical journey on uncharted frequencies. Join us as we dive deep into the dynamic world of San Marcos 78666. Musicians where sensational instrumentalists and mesmerizing musicians merge. Prepare to be captivated by their extraordinary talent and transported to a realm of rhythmic enchantment. Don't miss out on this electrifying expedition into the heart of musical genius. Join us at 11 a.m. on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month for two new half-hour back-to-back shows, Mothering Earth and Wonderful World. Mothering Earth, a show from Wimberley, features interviews with locals on important environmental issues in Hayes County. Mothering Earth will be followed by Wonderful World at 11.30. On the second Tuesdays of Wonderful World, hear all about the San Marcos River Foundation from host Diane Wasinich and her guests. On the fourth Tuesdays, host Aspen Navarro and her guests will have news from the San Marcos Greenbelt Alliance. Celebrate our wonderful world with your true community radio station, KZSM. Thank you for uh, staying with us. We're still with uh, Dr. Rebecca Montgomery and Becky Reese and Rob Wark and uh, Marianne Reese. So, so all I was going to ask was, in in a historical perspective, you you've got the progressives that really come to power with the 19th Amendment in the 20s. And then you talked about those backlashes. They came back after that. And, you know, I, it amazes me a lot of the political power that you talked about in that they found how to get this across the United States without the communications that we have mm-hmm. now. And by forming these committees and forming these, uh, you know, all of this infrastructure. And as times changed you know how did that affect you know we we're talking about the patriarchy we're talking about the power of women and then you know getting out and working and getting out uh, you know during war, the world wars you know with having to be more involved you know and then the men came back and you had the backlash again you know those you know you you talk about this cycle i just from a historical yeah. perspective i was curious so the the question is I guess the question is just how, at the end of the time frame of the progressives, you know, how so many things are still with us today, but how did things change, I guess, was, you know, as far as women's rights uh, and the patriarchy system? Yeah, so women do get the vote, but um, there's sort of, in, in some ways, there's a lull um, in the women's rights movement, and the young women in the 1920s just sort of take it for granted that they, you know, that just like I think a lot of young women took for granted the, the, the progress that was made in the 1960s and 70s. They took it for granted. They weren't interested in being um, activists, um, women's rights activists. They were more interested in the 1920s in being like men, basically. You know, so they cut their hair like men. They bound their breasts. They went out and smoked and drank in public, you know, the kind of flapper image. Um, so one, one answer would be that there's a generation of women who have no apparent interest 
and um, pursuing gender equality because they sort of assumed that all this is going to happen by itself. Um, but the other answer is that one thing that progressive women were really good at doing in their focus on equal access to higher education, creating these bureaucratic infrastructures for social services, is they created a lot of jobs for women. So a lot of women went into the jobs that were actually created by women's activism. So for example, um, organizing uh, rural communities to, to improve their schools or um, public health services. They became public health nurses. Um, and they became, and of course there's a creation of the, of the, um, the Children's Bureau within the Department of Labor and the Women's Bureau in the Department of Labor. So these are two separate um, bureaus within the Department of Labor that are staffed, especially the Children's Bureau, staffed almost exclusively by progressive women, young single career women with, who are college educated. Um, and so that really um, is the seed from which the New Deal grew. So these women are keeping alive the, these progressive ideals within federal agencies until um, Franklin Roosevelt then, you know, uh, actually, you know, actually um, enacts or gets Congress to enact legislation that brings their their goals to fruition. So, for example, Frances Perkins, um, who I've mentioned before, that witnessed the, the the death of those young girls in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Um, as, the, as the Secretary of Labor, she brought with her a draft of what becomes the Social Security Act. Mm -hmm. So this was something that progressives had wanted for a long time. And yeah, so, so even though women's rights as a prominent issue is not um, in the forefront the way it was when suffragists were, you know, constantly <laughs> organizing and lobbying for um, the 19th, the Susan B. Anthony Amendments, what they called it. but. Um, women are still involved in politics on a level that they never had been before. So it's not, it's not just all the negative in the sense that young women aren't interested. There's plenty of women who are still um, active politically. Right. It, it seemed like a, a, all of these movements that we've talked about historically yeah. seem to come bef after a war, after some... Yeah. <laughs> some the either, depression. Yeah, <laughs> something that has caused a new um, a new thinking a new yeah. way of looking at yourself and yourself within your community and government so it seems like the me too movement uh, black lives matter had been our most recent yeah but to me the you the war ukraine and russia and now israel and hamas that that seems everything kind of goes to the foreground yeah. when now we're all focused on on those countries and uh, but I guess the, the last question, maybe just a few minutes, you said it's, and Rob kind of uh, brought it back to our attentions, this idea about communication, how you get groups together. Yeah. So what do we, what could we do now? And again, one of the things Becky and Stephanie and I started talking about, we need to do something, be more yeah. active. And, and this program was, is a little step, yeah. but but I somehow want more, <laughs> need more. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> so um, I'd say just uh, continuing to be active politically. I mean, I think that that's vitally important. I think pushing back against efforts to roll back women's rights, um, 
you know, efforts to deprive women of basic civil rights. And, and I think that um, this, this is something that the young people, like college-age students now, male and female, yes. are just pretty astounded at the effort to deny women not only bodily autonomy, but even the right to, to birth control or, exactly. you know, just, yeah. just the right to control their own destinies and their own bodies, as well as, of course, the attack on LGBTQ rights, which is um, also part of the defense of patriarchy because because oh, yeah. um, yeah. if you have um, multiple gender categories um, if it's not just the binary um, male female um, heterosexual you know identities if there's if there's a spectrum it just kind of blows the patriarchal family out of the water <laughs> you know? it does yeah. um, and it and, and it diminishes the ability to control people based on um, attempts to shame them due to their gender or sexual preferences. So I know um, when I was a young woman, anyone who spoke up in support of women's rights or complained about um, sexual harassment were accused of being a man-hating lesbian. Exactly. Right? So it's an attempt to shame you. And it's, well, if being a lesbian is not something shameful, then how do you, you know, that just doesn't work anymore. Um, it, and so it's, you know, all of this is of a piece, I think, this backlash. It's not just to black rights, it's not just to women's rights, it's also to, to queer rights, basically. Yeah. I've got to add this just because we're talking about uh, the difference between the term sex and gender. And uh, Rebecca at the break was saying it's, it's kind of become a little bit more blurred because gender doesn't, is sometimes misused, but you, we tend to think gender is being more the social and cultural expectations or behaviors expected of right. the sexes, male, female. So the gender has that added control right. you know, so of what the society like, expects. Yeah, gender is like what, what, is it, what is masculine, what is feminine. Yeah. yeah. Well, Rather that, than what is, of course, we know the biological difference. Well, right? I finally <laughs> got a little handle on some of the terms, the gender identity terms, and that was cis and trans. And it's because of my, my chemistry background. The <laughs> cis means on the same side. Yeah. So that's binary basically. Yeah. And trans is opposite side. So you're yeah. you're born a male but you you feel a, yeah. a female. So okay. yay for me. Cis and trans. <laughs> that's gonna wrap it up. We need to wrap it up. I wanna thank uh, Dr. Rebecca Montgomery. My sister Becky and certainly Rob and I would really appreciate your your thoughts and what you add to the show and and this all all the topics actually I'd li I'd like Rebecca to come back and we talk more next year because <laughs> well, you know there, the there's so much I just want to say one thing that uh, our December 7th we'll have Stan Stanridge who's the chief of San Marcos Police Department since 2020 join us then we're going to hear all about what chief Stanridge is doing for our community sounds good and uh, thank you for tuning in today to human interest and uh, we just stay right around here for us coming up uh, uh, unknown frequencies is uh, uncharted frequencies oh, excuse me is coming up right next uh, and uh, thank you all for listening in here on KZSM LPFM 104.1 San Marcos Texas